0: Death is the biggest test of whether our framework for life holds up. There's a sentence to start a sermon. Death is the biggest test of whether our framework for life holds up. Everyone has a worldview, a framework for life. Everyone has a way of understanding the world. Everyone has a way of explaining life. And this way of understanding the world, this way of explaining life might help us in all sorts of ways, whether we can articulate it or not, might help us in making decisions, in setting life goals, in giving us purpose in life, in finding happiness. But if our way of understanding the world, if our way of understanding life doesn't allow us to talk about death with any certainty, it's let us down. If it doesn't give us peace of mind, if it doesn't give us confidence at that time, then it's fallen short. It needs to stand up to that moment. Uh, Back in January, my great-uncle died. We were on holidays at the time when we found out. And as the Christian family member, who also happened to just be a minister, I was asked to do the funeral... And before the funeral, my auntie emailed me the eulogy. This is how it ended. I am sure that he is looking down on us now, bitterly complaining about the weather in heaven and telling all the angels his life story. Have you heard things like that before at funerals? I remember thinking, how could she be so certain That he was in heaven. How could she be so confident that he spoke with the angels? My uncle was an atheist. He had no belief in life after death. He had no belief in heaven and hell. But she wasn't certain. She wasn't confident. She just didn't know what else to say. Because what else is there to say? What comfort is there if death is just the end? There's nothing more confronting in life than death. The shadow of death looms large over our lives and there's a sense of fear and uncertainty that comes with that, isn't there? And when someone we love dies, we're reminded that our days are numbered, that death isn't as far away as we might think. Well, the death of Lazarus in John 11 is confronting. It was confronting then and it's confronting now. It confronts us with the reality of death. But what Jesus says and what Jesus does gives us real hope in the face of it. Jesus gives us a framework for life that stands up to that moment. Jesus gives us a way of understanding the world, a way of explaining life that won't fall short, that won't let us down. With Jesus, we can talk about death with certainty. With Jesus, we can talk about death confidently. Well, in this true story, Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and and he's one of Jesus' closest mates. And John makes a big deal of how much Jesus loved him all the way through. In verse 3, Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus and they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. In verse 5, John stresses that Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. Down in verse 11, Jesus himself calls Lazarus his friend. And later at his graveside, Jesus breaks down in tears and everyone there, seeing how Jesus is moved, knows how much he loved him. Blind Freddy can see in this passage that Jesus had genuine love for his mate. Now, if you found out that someone you loved was knocking on death's door and that that you had the cure that would heal them, what would you do? You wouldn't muck around. You'd get on your bike and you'd rush to their deathbed and you'd help them. But Jesus, what does he do? Jesus, the one who gave life to the official's son on the brink of death in chapter 4, the one who gives sight to the blind, what does he do? Well, he does the exact opposite. He stays where he is. He's the one man who could save his friend, but he deliberately delays going to him and he lets Lazarus die and he leaves Mary and Martha grief-stricken, having to plan a funeral. Is Jesus just a rubbish mate? Now, Jesus had a good reason for what he does. He isn't being cruel here. He's not just being a rubbish mate. He lets his friend die because his death will serve a greater purpose. Look at the promise. This illness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Can someone just yell out a verse number for that? Verse 4. Sorry, I just forgot to put it in my notes. So verse 4, This illness will not in, end in death. That's the promise. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus is going to reveal His glory. Something about Himself for Mary and Martha to believe. Something for His disciples to believe. Something for us here today in Gangalan to believe. Jesus letting Lazarus die is not a callous act. It's a genuine act of love, and it will give us certainty in the face of death. It will equip us to handle death confidently. Well, Jesus arrives at Lazarus' tomb, and Martha, Lazarus' sister, comes out to meet him. When, When she sees him, she breaks down. If only you were here, Jesus. She knows he's the one man who could have stopped her brother from dying, but he wasn't there in time. And it seems like Jesus responds with the Jewish equivalent of he's talking to the angels, or he's in a better place, or he's looking down on us now. The words people say when they don't know what to say. But when Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again, Jesus isn't just giving her platitudes to cheer her up, and he's not just giving her the stock standard Jewish response. What Martha says is right. On the last day, there will be a resurrection. That's good theology. Everyone who's died will be raised, raised to face judgment. We would all do well to remember that. But even though she gets that right, that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not the whole picture. See, what Martha doesn't understand is the connection between the resurrection day she looks forward to in the future and the man that is standing right there in front of her in the present. She doesn't get that connection. And so Jesus makes it clear in verse 25 when he says these famous words that many of us will have heard before. I am the resurrection and the life. See, Jesus doesn't just promise the future resurrection. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He's not just talking about the future. He's talking about now. He's the resurrection now. He's the life now. Standing in front of Martha is the master of life and death, the one in charge of that future day, that last day. See, Martha can be certain of her brother's fate, Martha can be confident in the face of death. Just believe is the call. Just believe. Verse 25, the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. If you trust in Jesus, you've found life now and forever. Jesus is saying, Trust me. And at that most fundamental moment of your life, your trust won't be misplaced. You can be certain, you can be confident that I will take you through death to be with me forever. That's the significance of these words here and this promise. That's the significance of who Jesus is saying he is. Jesus is God's answer to death. Death, our greatest enemy. The enemy we don't want to think about, the enemy we don't want to talk about. And deep down we all know that death is our greatest enemy, don't we? But that doesn't stop us from living in denial, from pushing the fear of death to some deep, dark corner of our hearts. And one way we do this is by denying the horror of death and turning it into something that it is not, even when we come face to face with it. I'll tell you about another funeral of a different family member a couple of years ago. It was a sham. Death was spoken about as natural, as normal, almost a good thing. And because the horror of death was denied, the only comfort that we needed to hear was the knowledge that the person just lived on in our memories. That was the comfort given at this funeral. But to make the point, the celebrant resorted to Scripture. Scripture he twisted to suit his purposes. Twisting Romans 8, this is what he said. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of John that is in our hearts. That's what they said. They took the comfort of that verse... Which, says, which is talking about the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, the only comfort, the only hope in life and death, and replaced it with this empty promise of a love that just continues in our hearts. Don't worry everyone, your loved one has died, but take heart, he still lives in your hearts. I don't think I've ever been more angry in my life at that moment. But Jesus, when he saw Lazarus' sister Mary weeping, and those who were with her weeping, it says in verse 33 that he was deeply moved. And that word there expresses indignation. Jesus is angry at the sadness, the pain, and the suffering caused by death. Jesus is outraged. Because that's what death is it's outrageous. It's not right, it's not normal, it's not how things are meant to be. Jesus recognises that death is our greatest enemy, but unlike us, he can do something about it. Remember the big claim, I am the resurrection and the life, the claim that he's the master of life and death. Well, Jesus backs up his claim with evidence, but not just any kind of evidence, conclusive evidence. Undeniable evidence. And we've seen evidence for who Jesus is all the way through John's Gospel and this evidence takes the cake. I'll read the section from verse 38 again just, just to help it sink in again for us. Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe That you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Wow. To prove you're the master of life and death, raising someone from the dead is about as good as it gets, isn't it? And this is no magic trick. With a word, the man who walked out, it was Lazarus. He was in the clothes he was buried in four days ago. See, when Jesus asks us to believe him, to trust him in the face of death, Is there anyone better to trust than the man who can raise people from the dead? Jesus calls Lazarus back from the dead so that we would believe. This is the seventh and greatest sign in John's Gospel, revealing who Jesus is. The one who really is the resurrection and the life. The one who really is the master of life and death. Now Lazarus, he would physically die again. He's not a 2,000-year-old man walking around today. Wouldn't that be freaky? But Jesus brought him back from death as an illustration of a greater reality. Lazarus is like the trailer for the feature film. So you don't watch the trailer and think that that's just an end in itself. The trailer points to something greater, the feature movie. And that's what Lazarus does. He points us to Jesus See, Lazarus rose to die again, but Jesus rose never to die again. This is a game changer. Jesus, by his resurrection, beats death. We can't do it. If you were here at Easter, you would have seen me bring out the anti-aging cream and, um, you know, does this beat death? No, we can't beat death with anti-aging cream. I brought out the, the dumbbells, exercise, doesn't matter how much exercise we do, we can't beat death. And then the money, doesn't matter how good the doctors are that we can pay for, they can't help us beat death. But Jesus does. By his resurrection, Jesus beats death. This is amazing news. Don't get tired of it. Jesus reverses the curse of death on humanity and has the power to give life. What a reversal. What a reversal. But what John makes clear is that Jesus giving us life, Jesus giving us life cannot be separated from Jesus giving his own life. And that's what the next section of the story, shows us. See, the raising of Lazarus provokes two responses. There's some who believe, but others go and dob on him to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders from that point on, and you can read about it through the rest of John's Gospel, plot his death. And the irony of what Caiaphas says, the high priest, in verse 50 is amazing. Wow. This is what Caiaphas says. He says, it's better for you that one man die for the people, then the whole nation perish. Do you see the irony there? On the face of it, he's just talking about the best way to deal with Jesus to avoid political upheaval. It's better that Jesus dies, but not for the reason he thinks. Jesus will lay down his life on the cross and three days later, take it up again. And when he does that, he'll strip death of the one claim it has over us. He'll fully pay the price our sin deserves. And once he's done that, death won't hold him anymore. It has no claim over him and it has no claim over us who believe. Jesus is risen never to die again and the guarantee is that we too will rise never to die again. Death will come to us all, for some of us, sooner. For some of us, later. But none of us really know. But it's the one... It's one of the few certainties in life that we all face, isn't it? But Jesus, the Master of life and death, offers us something the world cannot. Something that no other take on life. Something that no other way of explaining the world can offer us. Certainty. Confidence. Confidence. See, there's no certainty in materialism, is there? Does the person who lives by the, the philosophy those who die with the most toys wins? Are they really thinking that on their deathbed? There's no certainty in cultural relativism where what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. There's no certainty in an explanation of life that just says everything happens randomly at pure chance. There's no certainty in the wishful thinking that everything will work out okay in the end. That's kind of the Australian philosophy of life, isn't it? Hakuna Matata, no worries for the rest of my days kind of thing. We all know that that's wishful thinking. Earlier in the year, my cousin was involved in a car accident. My uncle was telling me about it. They were on their way up the coast to play frisbee. Apparently, it's a sport. Um, playing in some national frisbee uh, tournament. And they were turning right at some traffic lights and it was a green light, but they didn't give way and they got hit by a car. And my uncle was telling me how, sh- how shaken up they were, how they realised that as, you know, 20-year-olds or whatever they are, 19, I think, maybe that they're not invincible, and that life is frail. And we started, my uncle and I, reflecting together on the frailty of life, and that none of us know when our, day, when our days will be up. But one thing he said to me stuck out, and my uncle's always been a great encouragement to me, his quiet faith and his confidence in God and in the Lord Jesus And he said, it's a good thing we know where where we're going, isn't it? It's a good thing we know where we're going. Do you know where you're going? Do you have your trust in Jesus, the only one who can take you safely through death and into eternity with him, the only one who can give you life now, where you can live in no fear, no fear of death, and know the outcome for certain.